You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. How's everyone doing? Good? All right, so today we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke as we examine and learn about the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And um, speaking of which, we, we don't have much information about what Jesus was like as a child, right? A, a couple of the other Gospels mention his birth and, and the visitation of the wise men uh, when he was probably a toddler, but, but then they skip right on over to the beginning of his ministry, which starts when he's in his 30s. So we're thankful for Luke and his, his research, which, which gives us the one and only glimpse in all of Scripture of what Jesus was like as a 12-year-old, as a 12-year-old boy. And what we'll find is that even at 12 years old, Jesus already has a lot to teach us about what it means to be a child of God. And so please turn with me now to Luke 2. We're going to start at verse 41 and read to verse 52. Luke 2, 41 to 52. All right, this is what the word says. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. All right. So about eight or nine years ago, my in-laws took our family on a trip to Orlando for a couple of weeks, which was, as you can probably guess, an incredibly enjoyable experience, which we'd like to go on again. It was super fun, except for, that is, maybe 20 extremely long minutes of that trip when we had one of the biggest scares of our life. On that particular day, I remember hanging out in an outdoor shopping and entertainment area called Downtown Disney. And I remember standing in line at a world-famous sandwich restaurant, just about to order lunch for the family. When when suddenly Audrey came running in and asked if if our four-year-old son Liam was with me. Confused, I said, no, I thought he was with her. 
And so I asked, well, maybe he's with her parents. But she said she checked with them, and he wasn't with them either. They, and they thought he was with me. And, and so began a frantic and scary search for our four-year-old son in a strange city. Turns out that he'd simply wandered off to look at something fun. But then as soon as he realized he couldn't find us, he actually just had gone to a security guard for help. Smart kid, even at four years old. So he was never really in any danger, but we didn't know that. And, and, the, and, and, the, and that experience of losing our child made 20 minutes feel like a lifetime. It, it was terrifying. It was terrifying not knowing where this little child whom we loved and were responsible for was. So, so on a small level, I can relate to Mary and Joseph from the passage this morning, except they not only lost their son, but they'd lost the Messiah, <laughs> the Savior of the world, and not just for 20 minutes, for three whole days. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are wondering, you know, how could they forget to bring Jesus with them as they made their journey back home? I mean, many of us have had our kids wander off at times, like I said, but I'm guessing none of you parents have ever, ever pulled a home alone situation and, and traveled home from, from a vacation without your child in the car or on the plane with you, right? Any, of, any, any guilty parties here? No? That's good. And, but, and yet, not only did they forget him, but, but they didn't even notice that he wasn't with them for a whole day. So, so how could that be? Well, this is probably easy, easy, easily explained. In, in the same way that Audrey and I thought our son was with another person, with our, maybe with our in-laws, who thought he was with us, you know, that same scenario was, was probably happening here. Mary probably thought Jesus was with Joseph, and Joseph probably thought he was with Mary, or maybe they thought he was with his, his cousins or, or whatever, right? Some other family. And, and this is likely because, as it says in the passage, Mary and Joseph obediently every year took that trip from their home in Nazareth to, to observe Passover in Jerusalem, which is where the temple is located. But, but it's highly unlikely that this was just a little small family trip. In fact, it's more likely that they traveled to Jerusalem in, in a large caravan, probably with the rest of their town, actually, or at least the members of their local synagogue, which is probably most of their town. Um, and, and normally, the men would travel in a group together with the women and children traveling in a separate group ahead of them. But the older children would be allowed to run back and forth between the two groups at their leisure. And then when they'd make camp at the end of the day, the families would join up with each other. And for Mary and Joseph, this was probably the moment they realized that Jesus wasn't with the other one as they'd thought or with any of their other family members. And in that moment... As a parent, I can only imagine how frantic and worried they became. Like, when did we lose him? When did we last see him? Did, did he wander off on the road? Did he get kidnapped? Did we leave him in Jerusalem? I think we have to go back to Jerusalem, right? For three whole days, which probably felt like a lifetime, they, they'd have these questions and worries swirling in their hearts and in their minds until they finally found Jesus, just simply hanging out at the temple which it turns out is where he'd probably been the whole time, a place in which he, he would have been quite safe and comfortable. And as I was studying this passage, I started thinking about maybe Mary later on in life, 
right? Maybe reliving this story year, years later and telling it to Luke as he was taking down his notes. I wonder if they'd exchanged a big laugh about it or if the experience still shook her to the core years later. Because, because again, if we think about it, three days without knowing where their child was, man, after, after worrying and frantically looking for so long and traveling back to Jerusalem, I'm guessing without much sleep, they must have been extremely exhausted and feeling this mixed bag of emotions by the time they found him, right? Relieved and yet shaken to the core and, and, and yet also probably just a little upset and aggravated for having to have gone through this whole ordeal. Ultimately, though, Luke writes that they were astonished. Their main emotion was astonishment, at seeing Jesus not only safe and sound, but mainly at finding him sitting at the feet of the teachers and elders in the temple, both learning from them and to the amazement of all, wisely, wisely answering questions from them about his knowledge of the scriptures. At 12 years old, I spent most of my time playing soccer and video games. But Jesus, at 12 years old, is keeping up with the teachers at the temple. So in one sense, it wouldn't be surprising that he knew Scripture. In, in post-Babylonian Judaism, all children were taught from a very young age to learn and memorize the Scriptures at their local synagogue. This was, this was like their school for them because the law and the prophets were, were part of their culture. That was their law. That was their lifestyle. So they learned that. But it seems like Luke's emphasizing for us here that Jesus doesn't just know Scripture but that he already comprehends its meaning to the point with which he's even impressing the teachers themselves through both his eagerness to learn more and his wisdom about it. But, of course, with Mary being a concerned and exasperated mother, she doesn't let this astonishment at his wisdom stop her from expressing her combined relief and despair toward him as she asks, son, why have you treated us so? I think parents can relate to that. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Today they might have said something like, what were you thinking? We were worried sick about you. And Jesus' answer which we're going to spend the rest of the message focusing on and hopefully learning from and being encouraged by and challenged by this morning is, in, is incredibly profound and full of meaning. He says to them from verse 49, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. So first of all, if, if, if any of you were ever curious about whether or not Jesus knew who he was, who he truly was when he was a child, here's your answer. Yes, it seems as though he did. Obviously, we can't know um, if he knew the full extent of God's plan or, or what he would yet do. But at this point, at least, we, we can assert that by calling God his father... He's certainly affirming his divinity as the Son of God. But at the same time, he's also recognizing that in his humanity, 
that his full purpose and his true identity would only be fully realized through being in communion with God and by being in submission to him. Right? So he's affirming his divinity as the son of God while simultaneously recognizing that his full purpose and his true identity would only be fully realized through being in communion with God and by being in submission to him. In fact, instead of, instead of saying, in my father's house, another translation has Jesus saying, I must be in the things of my father. Or I must be about my father's business or something like that, right? And, and about this Warren Wearsby writes, even at the age of 12, Jesus was moved by a compulsion to do the father's will. Certainly he grew in his comprehension of those mysteries of the wisdom of God as he communed with the father and was taught by the spirit. So in this moment, Jesus, Jesus is making it, it clear that God is his father, but he's also making it clear that the father's business is his business over and above anything else. He must be about his father's will. His, he's submissive to him and him alone, not only by seeking out his presence, but also by demonstrating his submissiveness to the word as well. That, that is his, his, his commitment to being teachable, right? To learning and understanding and growing in the scriptures. And, and as a side note here, we, we might be tempted to think that he's being disobedient to his earthly parents by, by failing to go home with them in the first place. But first of all, a 12-year-old in that culture would be more like a 16 or 17-year-old today. Right? So he's old enough to take care of himself at this point. They were much more prepared for life and mature back then. But secondly, we, we also soon see that, that, that his humble submission to the Father in heaven is actually then directly reflected in the way he submits to his earthly parents right after this. Right? As it says in verses 51 to 52, this is after they found him, right? And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So first of all, there's a direct correlation with his increasing in wisdom and stature and his submission to God. Right? But secondly, his submission to God is then reflected in his submissiveness to his parents. Mary and Joseph. Are we, are we following along here? So, so this is not only a lesson for our, our children and, and the teenagers here this morning or listening online, but this is a lesson for, for all of us. The Bible repeatedly tells us that our submission to God should also be reflected and exemplified in the way we submit to others. Scripture, for example, Scripture tells, us our tells our children to submit to their parents and honor their father and mother. It tells wives and husbands to submit to each other as an example of the church to Christ and Christ to the church, respectively. It tells slaves and workers to submit to their masters as if unto the Lord. It tells citizens to submit to their government and leading authorities 
as long as it doesn't conflict with their faith and their practice as believers, knowing that God has appointed them and is sovereign over them. Right? We don't need to exert authority over anyone because we, we're, we're, we're comfortable in our identity in the one who has full authority, right? And so we can submit to others. But ultimately, what Jesus is, is showing us here is that before all things, before all things, before anyone else, a true disciple seeks first the kingdom of God. A true disciple lays down his life and follows the Lord, no matter how much the world or our family and friends might look at us with confusion or like we're out of our minds, as Mary and Joseph had with Jesus, they didn't understand what he was talking about. And the world won't understand us when we seek first the kingdom of God. But that's what we do as disciples. We seek the Lord first. And Jesus knows, even as, as a 12-year-old, that in order to become who he's meant to be and in order to accomplish what he's been sent to do, he needs to be in complete obedience, submission, and surrender to the Father's will. Of course, in our culture, we often view submission as being this negative thing. We don't want anyone to control us or tell us what to do. But again, biblically speaking, and, and of course, barring abusive cases and unhealthy relationships, submission to the will of God and to one another is actually how we become our true and complete selves and how we express our true and complete selves. We were created to be in relationship with and led by God. It's who we're meant to be. On the flip side, Doing our own thing apart from God is the very definition of sin. We just learned that in the kids' story, in the kids' message, right? Doing our own thing apart from God is the very definition of sin. And, and, and guess what? It's still submission. But to the flesh and to the devil, we're always submitting to something. And this is the very act of, of rebellion, as we just learned in the kid's story, the very act of rebellion in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve decided to go their own way and disobey God by eating the fr of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And in doing so, they became corrupted and sinful versions of who God had created them to be. They became set apart from God in their sin. And so unlike Adam, who turned from the presence of God in sin and disobedience, Jesus a better Adam, Jesus lives in and is shaped by the Father. It's within the presence of God and in total surrender to him and to his word that he's able to mature in wisdom and in stature and become who he was created to be. As Mark Sayers writes about Jesus, his early years show him shaped in the ways of God in the temple, learning and following, dwelling, in the house of the Lord. And then in his adult years, he announces through his preaching that the kingdom was here. God had drawn near. Despite opposition, the crowds, the stubbornness and difficulty of his disciples, he continually retreats to spend time with his father. Jesus models the perfect life system. At the center is abiding with the father. His life is an act of total worship and service to God. 
The presence of God is not just the destination, but also the road to get there. So again, Jesus grew in stature and wisdom and in the favor of God and man precisely because he was always in complete surrender to the Father's will, in complete obedience to the law and word of God, and always seeking ways and times to be alone with him. And in the same way, it's only through total submission to God that we will flourish in what we are uniquely designed to do. It's only through total submission to God that we will flourish in what we are uniquely designed to do. Like Jesus models for us, our spiritual growth and transformation, that is our becoming who we're meant to be, is directly linked and predicated on being in a submissive relationship with the Father and to his word. And and this is the ultimate lesson and end goal of discipleship. To be able to humbly surrender to the Father in all things. To to get to that place where we can not only proclaim, but desire with all our hearts and, and live out every moment of our lives just as Jesus proclaimed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. That's the end goal of discipleship. To be able to proclaim that with everything we are, not my will, but yours be done. And simply put, the more time that we spend creating rhythms and attitudes in our lives to spend time with God and in meditation on his word, the more we'll become who we're meant to be. The ironic thing is that as humans, we have this selfish or prideful tendency to do the opposite, don't we? We have have this corrupted idea, again, rooted in our sinful nature, that somehow we'll find our true selves the more individualistic we become, the more we resist submitting to God, the more we resist submitting to others. Because we want to decide our own destiny. We want to become our own person. Or we're afraid that if we submit to God, he'll make us do something that isn't good for us, or that he'll, he'll take too long to come through, or that he'll fail us. We think we can't rely on anyone but ourselves. But as as Jesus shows us and teaches us here, and as we'll find as we go throughout the book of Luke, to to seek first the kingdom of God is first of all trustworthy. God loves us, and he has a good purpose for each of us and for the church. And secondly, that it's the only way we'll actually discover who we truly are. As it says in Philippians 1, 6, this is, this is the promise for us. It says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right? God will not fail us. God will complete that good work that he's doing in us. But yet, Again, how many of us struggle? How many of us struggle to create rhythms or regular habits in our day where we can spend time with God or read his word or worship him or serve in his name or pray or or just humble ourselves quietly before him? How many of us struggle to do that? 
Because the truth is, we, we won't mature or discover our true selves in Christ unless we're doing these things. James 4, 7 to 8 presents this, this struggle to us when it writes, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We see that struggle. We, are, are we submitting to God or submitting to the devil? So it says, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So it's saying stop being double-minded. Stop saying you follow Christ and yet actually submitting to your flesh and to the world. Instead, make a decision to submit to God. Submit your guilt. Submit your anxieties. Submit your pride. Submit your sin. Submit your plans and your desires. Submit your hearts and your thoughts. Submit your gifts and your finances. Submit your career. Submit your relationships. Submit yourself to the word. Submit your whole lives to him. And he will direct your paths and transform your heart and minds in his likeness according to who you're meant to be. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Jesus not only modeled this very thing, but, but he actually humbled himself before the Father and submitted to his will to the point of death on the cross and in doing so by taking the weight of our sin upon himself was raised from the dead and exalted at the right hand of God where he now intercedes for us on our behalf and makes it possible for us to be reconciled with God made new as his children and filled with his spirit so that we can have this same type of deep and life-giving relationship with the Father just like he did. Because as the word says, this is true life. This is what life is all about. This is true life, to know God and Jesus Christ, his son, whom he sent. This this is why Jesus invites us to abide in him as he abides in us, right? Because that's the only place where we'll bear good fruit. That's the only place where we'll discover our true identity and purpose as as children of God, as image bearers of Christ. And as we move along through through the book of Luke, this will be the goal. To grow in our ability and desire to humbly abide in Christ the more we grow in our knowledge and wisdom of who Jesus is, the more we'll grow in our ability and desire to humbly abide in him so that we can continue to be transformed and matured into who God created us to be. Ultimately, to become closer and closer to that place of true discipleship where Jesus already was as a 12-year-old, where we must be in our Father's house, where we must be about his business and accomplishing his will and his good purpose in us. As it says in Ephesians 4, 21 to 24, as we conclude this morning, surely you heard of him and were taught in him in keeping with the truth that is in Jesus, to put off your former way of life, your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be renewed 
in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us with such deep and merciful love that you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to take the weight and the penalty of our sin upon himself so that we could be reconciled to you. So that like Jesus, we can, we can know you as your children. So that we can have this relationship with you. Lord, in the, in the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us the, the ability and the capacity to, to, to not take that for granted, but to be able to humbly surrender our lives before you each and every day. Lord, that like Jesus, you, you, would, you would compel us to come before you in, in prayer and in worship and in, and in servitude, that we would be your vessels. We would desire for your will to be done and accomplished in our lives and in this church. Lord, help us submit to you in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Help us resist the devil and the things of the world that, that try to draw us in, Lord. Help us to abide in you as you abide in us. And we thank you that you've given us that invitation and that opportunity to know you and to be known by you and to partner with you in the good work of your eternal and glorious kingdom. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done, for what you're doing in us. I pray that you would continue that work until you come again. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.